1: Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, FIFTY at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. My name is Nathan Opson, and I'm host for New Books in Japanese Studies. A member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Sujin Lee about her book, Wombs of Empire Population Discourses and Biopolitics in Modern Japan. The book is out from Stanford University Press in 2023. In 2007, Japan's health minister referred to women ages 15 to 50 as birthing machines. The context for this remark was a speech about Japan's declining birth rate and its projected population shrinkage. As Lee shows in Wombs of Empire, neither population anxieties, nor the idea of women as child-bearing devices whose wombs were the property of the state, are new. However, when the so-called population problem became a public preoccupation for politicians, scientists, and activists in the 1910s, it was an expression of worries about overpopulation and carrying capacity in a resource for nation and empire. Wombs of Empire traces the trajectory of population discourses and practices from these years through wartime Japan with particular attention to the ways in which notions of motherhood were constructed hierarchically within the context of empire and war, and how Malthusian population control discourses formulated by leftists, feminists, scientists, and politicians gave way to the natalism of total war. Okay, Dr. Lee, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, So I'd like to first uh, start off by asking you how it is that you became interested in the set of sort of research questions and problems that became the book wombs of empire mm-hmm.
1: thanks for having me nathan um just as many first time book authors in academia this book project started out from my dissertation uh, research on different streams of population discourse um during the interwar period in japan uh, from the beginning of the dissertation project to the completion of this book, uh, I believe it spans almost over a decade, if I want to include my PhD training, um, there were some important moments that shaped and reshaped the essential nature of this book. So. Um, to give you some instances of those uh, integral moments, uh, first, um, I was drawn into this concept of population problem in Japanese. It's called Jinko mondai. Uh, during my second year of the PhD program. Um, and I worked on a research paper at the time on Abe Iso, who is a Japanese um, Christian socialist and activist and intellectual in the prior period, mainly as, as part of my uh, final assignment submitted to the course on materialist theories. And when you go through Abe Iso's career, even quickly on Wikipedia, uh, you'd be struck by enormously wide uh, range of his um, activism and areas of writing, ranging from the the leftist uh, labor movement to the campaign for the abolition of licensed prostitution, birth control, and later eugenics movement. He was involved in various movements like this. And I was particularly interested in his involvement in the birth control movement, uh, which he promoted among many the Japanese working class people as early as um, 1920s. And uh, his commitment to the birth control campaigns was framed as solutions to the pressing population problem that he called Jinko Mundai. And Abe, just like his fellow birth control advocates at the time, considered uh, especially overpopulation as a source of many socioeconomic uh crises faced by Japan at the time, and the ways in which population became linked with this economic issues such as unemployment and poverty, etc., helped me uh Reconsider the often dismissed link between population, sorry, production and reproduction, in a in a capitalist society, Um, where the latter reproduction was relegated into the background of social life, but at the same time, you see that it becomes subject to uh, social, government, governmental and medical control. So um, although uh, many many uh, feminist Marxist scholars have brought to the fore the issues of social reproduction in terms of labor that goes into the reproduction of workers in a capitalist context, uh, I wanted to take this question of reproduction further to think about how well, not only social reproduction, but also biological uh, reproduction that is um, very much naturalized domain of human life is in fact regulated in, and informed by various social practices and also actors in their attempt to address uh, issues of capitalist production. That discussion I made in my uh, final research paper at the time uh, led the foundation of my dissertation later. and. Um, In my dissertation, I examined the trajectory of various social movements and and knowledge production uh, during the interwar period that worked toward addressing what they call population problem in their own distinctive ways. And Abe Isu was uh, one of the main figures I examined in my dissertation as part of my discussion on neo-Malthusian birth control advocates and, and their uh interlinking vision of population control race betterment and eugenic uh, grounds and also economic and and social reform and another source of inspiration in terms of shaping my um shaping the assets of my book um uh, is that my book was finally able to incorporate gender analysis thanks to some inspiring and insightful interactions that i had with colleagues, and researchers in the fields of gender history or gender and feminism studies. Uh, initially, I was planning to expand my dissertation to to include uh, population discourse in the wartime period, so I could examine some continuities uh, between the interwar and wartime period, in the sense that population, or in Japanese jinko gradually became a focal point of governance, medical intervention, and intellectual discussion, especially in the discipline of social sciences. Uh, if I had pursued that discussion in my book, the book could have looked very um, different uh, from what it is now. And I believe that I could have suffered from some regrets on the absence of um, the essential discussion, such as gender, aspects of population, um, discourse of reproduction, and motherhood that were at the heart of population discourse, so that were supposed to be there in my discussion. Um, luckily, or um, I should say regrettably and luckily, uh, it took some time for me uh, to reach that realization that I need um, gender lens to illuminate uh, the complexity of population discourse, uh especially simultaneously inclusionary and exclusionary politics that were embedded in the language movements and also knowledge regarding population control and uh thanks to those uh, fellow researchers i've been interacting uh, with in various occasions over the past few years i was able to revisit my manuscript and reformulated uh the theme um of my manuscript to bring a gender lens into my discussion and um, about the population reproduction, and, and as a result, the book came to have a chapter on on the wartime population policy and its ideological and institutional construction of motherhood, especially Japanese motherhood. And on top of that, I analyzed eugenic feminism uh, that pursued the intertwined logic of um, maternal feminism and eugenic principles of race betterment uh, during the interwar and the wartime period. So, uh, my attempt to dissect the discourse of motherhood was uh, very integral to de essentializing, or you can call it denaturalizing women's reproductive experiences or their bodies and even the category of women itself. Uh, and also, uh, by doing so, I wanted to eliminate how the concept of population is neither nearly quantifiable, uh, quantifiable demographic, um, data, nor just a totalized form of life as Michelle Pucco uh, often puts it, but it is a uh, malleable, unstable, divergent, and, um, Engendered gendered uh, entity that requires various mechanisms to sustain it. Um, on a side note, um, I would add that the title of this book, Worms of Empire, was uh, decided in the later stage of writing. I believe that having a final title is, um, it, it really comes uh, in the later stage. I, I think this is most writers' experiences. Uh, I should give half of the credit to my amazing editor Dylan at uh, Stanford, who kindly suggested me to change the original title. It was pretty dull. Uh, and he suggested that uh, he, he suggested a very clear, clearly articulated subtitle. Um, but the main title, wombs of Empire, was inspired by the book I was reading at the time, luckily. Uh, it's called The wombs of Women. Uh, it's um, by uh, Francois. I don't think I pronounced her name correctly. I'm not a French speaker, but um, the author is an activist in history and um, a firm I never met, but um, she enlightened me with her brilliant book on the medical colonial violence against gendered and racialized uh, women in the French island of Reunion. Um, and I wanted to mention this to emphasize, again, how both direct and indirect interactions with scholars in gender and feminism studies. Along my um, writing journey guided me in the uh, critical approach to the history of population discourse in the Japanese national and imperial context. And I really appreciate all the insights that made this book possible and richer.
0: Well, and I appreciate, uh, you giving us a really in-depth, uh, uh, look at sort of how, not only how the book is sort of structured and put together, but you know, the elements that went into it, um, but why they're there, uh, and what they're doing, um, I want to maybe back out just a little bit, uh, and take a look at some of the big, um, issues that you lay out in your introduction and your epilogue, and then we'll look at, uh, the, the two parts essentially of the book, which are each, um, three chapters. Um, so starting uh, in the introduction, you lay out the premise that, uh, and I want to quote you here uh, population is a critical site where different visions of modernity play out. Um, and you're starting from this point, you explore how. Um, in the Japanese Empire, bodies were not only massified in the form of population, but also differentiated and excluded along the lines of gender and race. And you've already started to talk um, about this quite eloquently in your inter- in in the um, introduction you just gave. But I wanted to highlight that again because I have some questions about uh, those themes. So first, um, and again, I think you've touched on this a little bit, but I wanted to sort of have you dig down uh, into the into the question of why is it that the relationship between population and modernity specifically is important and interesting for you? To me, it seems like maybe one way to answer this would be to start with your argument that, as you put it, population discourse arose in response to the predicament of modernity. So already you're you're sort of putting the two together there, but I, I, I hope you can unpack that a little bit for us. Mm-hmm.
1: Thanks for the wonderful question. Uh, it is A very fundamental question. I believe it requires some long-winded answers, so I hope you bear with me. Um, I believe it is precisely because of the concept of modernity that is such an abstract term. So it's a simultaneously problematic and productive one. And on the one hand, uh, it is problematic because a term has prescribed certain norms, ideas, and practices regarding what ought to be modern, and the imposition of modernity in the history of Japanese context comes with so-called Western modeled nation building, nation state building, and transformation into a capitalist society, aspiration to become a colonizer like Western other Western empires in the context of 19th century, 20th century international order, and also some fascination with the idea of progress. So those are the images and, and norms about modernity uh, in the context of um, early 20th, 19th century and 20th century. But um, as some scholars, as uh, like Henry Haritunio, for example, notes in his book, what Japanese intellectuals um, witnessed in the interwar period was uh, what Haritunio calls unevenness. Uh, uneven temporality, specifically uh coeval a presence of different temporalities that did not fit into those norms that I just described of modern in reality. Indeed, the lived experience of uh, quote-unquote modern does not follow the history of history with uh, capital H, but uh, only creates a gap or, or chasm between modern as a prescriptive regime, and modern as lived experiences. And it is this gap that I wanted to delve into further to think about uh, social anxieties that were shared among social reformers, labor activists, and population scientists, driven by their lived experiences of modern that were filled with class, Inequalities or regional inequalities, uh, social and political unrest, or poverty and diseases, etc. The list goes on. And what caught my interest particularly was that their anxieties were expressed with the term "population problem." And this term "population problem" or "jinkomodai" was actually a buzzword during the interwar period, especially since the late 1910s. Uh, when economic issues and social inequalities became increasingly uh, pronounced, and this got me wondering uh, why such collective anxieties about how majority unfolded unevenly uh, were reductively called the population issue. Uh, another question that I raised uh, as I was going through primary sources when these various groups called for the solution of the population problem did they define the problem in the same way later on proposing the same solution and the ways in which socioeconomic issues faced by japanese society at the time were framed as a problem of reproduction more specifically the problem of having either too many people to feed or too many workers Uh, to feed into this limited uh, employment pool, uh, that allows us to understand that population is essentially a site where different visions of modernity were translated into simply a problem of the body. And different solutions to the predicament of modernity were proposed vis-a-vis the control of the body. And in the meantime, I mentioned earlier that there's also a productive aspect of the concept, majority in the sense that, um, at an analytical level, it provides a tool to illuminate particular, uh, historical patterns and, and also tensions that were experienced uh, differently at a local level. And as to majority as an analytical tool, I'm specifically referring to Foucault's uh, discussion of biopolitics and governmentality. And as you may have noticed, or admittedly, uh, my analysis of population discourse in the context of Japan proper, and more broadly in the context of Japanese colonial empire was inspired by uh, Foucault's discussion of biopolitics and population as a target of government, which is a salient um, symptom of modernity uh, in its view. That said, my own dialogue with uh, Foucaultian um, biopolitics, um was not used in the way that i apply his theoretical um account of frameworks blindly to the specific context of modern japan instead i wanted to make this concept uh, more even more productively in my analysis of population or jinko in japanese um a critical approach to the concept of biopolitics and also population was necessary and also essential because I like how Foucault uh, conceptualized the birth of population as if it was a homogenized and totalized entity that was subject to uh, modern governance and modern knowledge. In fact, in the lived experiences of uh, population in Japan, you see that population was always in the making and moreover, it involved not only inclusionary politics, but also exclusionary politics. To put more simply, uh, the boundary of the population was unstable, and it was particularly the case when the Japanese empire uh, had to incorporate uh, colonized bodies from Korea and and Taiwan into the pool of so-called readily mobilizable human resources to wage the war. Um, Another worth mentioning point is that the female reproductive body became instrumental to the regulation of the quantity and quality of the population. The idea of motherhood, for example, uh, was also the motherhood protection was first promoted by maternal feminists and some birth control advocates during the interwar period. And later, this idea was picked up by the wartime government in the pursuit of improving the quality of what they call human resources, the worms of women in this case, Japanese women, are uh, in particular, were considered as a source of the health of the Japanese race and the security of the nation. So, such a gender aspect of population control is virtually, uh, I believe, absent in Fuku's account of biopolitics, and this limitation motivates me to engage with uh, his for his framework of population from a critical distance so that I could challenge the gender-blinded and European-centric framework of modernity using a gender and and historical lens.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's a really useful, uh, not only explanation of what you're doing, but also a a great transition into the next question that I have for you, Um, because you were talking about sort of the ways that these um, politics and and ideologies of modernity and population are projected differentially onto individual bodies, massified or micro massified bodies. Um, and so the question that I have for you then is exactly how, um, these different treatments arise, uh, the different treatments of bodies arise and what do they mean? And for you, what was it that made you feel that specifically uh, the Instruction motherhood as a sort of discursive concept was the way to approach this problem uh, in thinking about population in modern Japan?
1: That's another great question. And I I try to answer to that question throughout my book, uh, either implicitly or explicitly. I hope that I did a good job. Um, So, um, as mentioned earlier, population is not a fixed or objective concept, uh, like it is often assumed um, in a demographic sense. Uh, I believe its malleability lies in the fact that different modes of power constantly attempt to draw lines between different bodies so that the boundary between the inside and the outside can be defined and redefined and, and also banished. For example, during the Asia Pacific War, the wartime uh, regime created the Ministry of Health and Welfare, which is uh, in Japanese, uh, for the first time to govern um, um, various administrative uh, tasks needed to optimize the size and health of the Japanese population. And I call this uh, emergence of the state's uh, role and institutional intervention into the population management, uh, so-called the rise of biopolitical state. And this term uh, biopolitical state is used to highlight how the total state It was uh, often considered as irrational, feudal, or fascist regime in earlier historiography of Japan. In fact, uh, they orchestrated knowledge and institution uh, to create the system of the population management, including uh, welfare and insurance policies, motherhood and childhood assistance programs, eugenic laws, and population science research. Here, my intention is not to make any um, value-laden judgment about the wartime government's contribution to the creation of the welfare system, but my goal here is to cast new light on the wartime regime embodying cer- certain biopolitical modernity to pursue the systematic scientific management of bodies. Um, Going back to my earlier point, it is amidst uh, this increasing state intervention in the quantity and quality of the population during the wartime where motherhood, or in Japanese bose, had become the focal point of the population governance. Under the slogan of healthy soldiers and healthy people, uh, in Japanese kanpei, kanmin, uh, the wartime state along with uh, population scientists and eugenicists at the time, developed uh, programs and campaigns to ensure the increase uh, in the population size or more precisely, the size of human resources, and also the improvement of their quality on eugenic grounds. So it is conceivable why women's reproductive function in their bodies had become integral to the state's war mobilization policies. Uh, One of the primary reasons for this book to be titled Women's Empires is to emphasize that instrumentality of women's reproductive function in in the population governance. And um, the investment in young women's bodies, whether they were expecting or would be in the future as expected by the state, uh, by providing financial and medical assistance systematically uh, unveils the underlying gender politics of the biopolitical state. That is to say, um, foregrounding motherhood as a source of the health of future citizens and ultimately the source of national strength. Um, this particular care invested in women's, uh, reproductive function or their body bears complexity. If we bring the historical narratives of the Japanese colonial empire into the picture. Uh, toward the end of the Asia-Pacific War, uh, the empire had no choice but extended the limit of the population to include Korean and Taiwanese bodies, as those now eligible for health and welfare policies. Um, As many of you, many listeners know, Takashi Fujitani, in his book, Waste for Empire, used uh using the term polite racism, he exp- uh, explained about this. And uh, the integration of male colonial bodies from colonial Korea and Taiwan into mobilizable human resources uh, accompanied the changes in the colonial discourse of motherhood and reproduction as well. That's an interesting uh, part uh, that I discovered throughout my uh, research. Uh, But as I argue in the later chapters of my book, Ronatalist policies or welfare programs in these colonies, Korea and Taiwan, uh, did not develop into a full-fledged ones. And only rhetorical aspects uh, were pronounced to imbue these colonized mothers with the idea of imperial mothers. And in addition to this, as discussed in my uh, last chapter, fifth chapter, if you compare the wartime state and medical intervention into the Japanese mothers, to the systematic mobilization of sexual slaves, uh, which primarily targeted women from the colonies, it is easily conjectured that the biopolitical state delineated the boundary between those who are worthy of procreation and others who are not, so who do not deserve the state protection but only exploitation. And as just mentioned, the concept of population um, inherently involves the work of delineating the boundary between the inside and outside because the limit of the bodies deserving the state protection should be sustained. Uh, this boundary, though, does not necessarily concern uh, racial or gender differentiation, but also can be drawn within the national or ethnic group as well. For example, how the wartime and even post-war eugenic world in Japan Uh, actually um, legitimize the sterilization of individuals with certain hereditary diseases or a few uh, non-hereditary diseases like leprosy, for example, reveal the contingent uh, nature of boundary. The fact that the state could legitimately deprive the group of people of the rights of procreation uh, for the sake of the population quality reminds us that the politics of inclusion and exclusion takes place at multiple levels and also along multiple lines, even including at genetic levels.
0: Yeah, and, and I think this is uh, one of the things that's most uh, sort of striking about the book is, the, is as you say, the multiple levels on which the divisions of the modern sort of biopoliticalized population are happening. And so you explore that in more depth, of course, in the two parts, uh, six chapters of the book. Um, and the first uh, part is is the sort of interwarriors proper, if you will. And then the second part is, you know, depending on how you define wartime, uh, we're getting into wartime with the 1930s. Um, and so i want to look at those first three chapters uh, in which, you know, as you said, it's more about these sort of Malthusian anxieties about population control and limited resources, the jinko mondai, or where it intersects with my work, the jinko shokuryo mondai. Um, that sort of, you know, uh, it was, again, very interesting for me uh, reading this. Um, so in this context, um, you're looking at some of the knowledge... And policies vis a vis population, both quantity and quality, um, from various points of view. right? And so, this was, I guess, the other side of what we were just talking about, which is that it's not just that the divisions are happening on multiple levels, but that there are so many different actors who are involved with. Um, doing the discursive work, at least, of creating those divisions. So you have Marxists, you have feminists, you have establishment scholars, you have bureaucrats, politicians. Uh, and so what ties all of these groups that you look at specifically uh, in the first chapter together in their vision of the population problem? Um, and conversely, how do they end up different? Because, of course, they do. Otherwise, you wouldn't have spent you know different chapters on them.
1: Yeah. <laughs> As you just effectively summarized, this this book is arranged in both chronological and thematic order. And the first three chapters examine um, interwar population discourse that variously constituted and responded to what they call the population problem. And in, in these three chapters, I examine what I call uh, I call myself the cacophony of published discourse uh, in the 1920s and 30s, uh, which essentially indicates uh, multifaceted versions of reconstructing the real population governance. Um, as described with the word of uh, cacophony, the notion of publishing problem uh, did not mean a single issue. but It was defined as um, multiple ways by a different group of intellectuals and activists. And also depending on how they define what the problem was or or what the core issue was, their solutions also varied. Uh, For example, as I examined in the first chapter, uh, Japanese neo-Malthusianists and leftists, uh, they articulate the problem differently in the interwar period. Uh, The history of neo-Malthusianists and leftists Birth control movements during that time, roughly uh, from the late 1910s uh, through early 1930s. Uh, this history reveals growing interest in the quantity and the quality of the Japanese population among social reformers, socialists, and labor activists who sought an all embracing biological solution to a variety of socioeconomic challenges. And here, I should note that I did not make up the term uh, quantity of quality of the population. Um, in Japanese, but uh, actually many social scientists and labor activists, uh, for example, as we can see uh, from the debate, it's a very uh, open-sided debate uh, between Takada Yasuma and Kawakami Hajime. They have a debate over the population issue in the late 1920s. But anyway, uh, many intellectuals at the time often used this term, uh, quantity and quality of the population, when they engaged with discussion about uh, various demographic issues. Uh, And the ways in which the problem is presented in a dual sense, uh, that is, quantity and quality, indicates the intertwined influences of, for example, statistics, uh, especially census that started uh, in 1920 in Japan proper, but earlier in Taiwan, Japan's colony. And other influences came from eugenics and also ongoing debates between Malthusian advocates and Marxists over the cause of poverty and inequality in European and American contexts. So these are another influences that constitute this um, discussion around quantity and quality of, of the population. And coming back to the Japanese neo-malthusian advocates and laptops, although both used the notion of population problem, but interestingly, they had conflicting views on the definition of the population problem. Um, More specifically for neo-malthusianists, the gist of the problem was overpopulation, mainly caused by, uh, from their views, unchecked fertility. Uh, in the meantime, for leftists, it was essentially classicist, structurally caused by capitalism and unequal distribution of resources. And you can't think that this was very much aligned with uh, Marx or Lenin's denunciation of Malthus' principle of population, uh, as they argued that overpopulation was uh, bourgeois rhetoric, but it's not actually a real problem. The real problem is already embedded in the capitalist system. And many mm-hmm. Japanese leftists follow that uh, line too. But despite this different interpretation of this problem, uh, both neo malthusians and leftist mm-hmm. advocates played a crucial role in reconfiguring reproduction as a fundamental cause, as well as source of solution for the modern crisis facing the Japanese society at the time. And it is precisely this different or even conflicting vision embedded in the population discourse that caught my attention. Uh, to this multifaceted uh, layer of the population discourse during the interwar period, uh, two feminist birth control advocates, uh, Yamaka Kikue and Ishimoto Shize or Kato Shise, uh, she changed her name later, uh, added an uh, interesting voice regarding motherhood. Um, they both adopted uh, the term voluntary motherhood from American birth control activist Margaret Sanger. Uh, when it comes to uh, Yamakao Chikwe, socialist feminist um, Yamakao Chikwe, she argued for working-class women's reproductive choice to liberate them from both capitalism and tetrarchy. What is interesting about her argument is that she also criticized uh, the patriarchal aspect, patriarchal hierarchy within the class uh, movement. So she also, uh, made an argument that even if let's say that there's a revolution and there's a, uh, a proletarian state and that was, that, uh, arose, then still women's reproductive choice or their freedom had to be maintained. That was her argument, which, which was. Even from uh, the current point of view, it was pretty, pretty radical argument that could be made at the time. Um, going back to, uh, two feminist birth control advocates, Ishimoto Shusei on the other hand, uh, she adopted the same term voluntary motherhood, but she pierced her birth control advocacy with eugenic ideas to emphasize that women's reproductive autonomy will lead to elevating their status in the nation by producing healthy offspring therefore contributing to the race betterment. So we see the, the uh, eugenics in our argument. Uh, despite their obviously different political position, uh, actually both feminists, uh, Ishimoto and Nemakawa, they, um, their arguments can be tied together in the sense that uh, both of them foregrounded women's uh, reproductive autonomy in ultimately addressing Japan's Imperialist expansion and militarism, capitalist exploitation and patriarchal oppression—all of which are, from their views, the symptoms of gendered modernity. And and lastly, I also examined some uh, population scientists who were involved in the war, interwar governments or semi-government population uh, research committees. For example, mondai Josakai, I translated. Uh, as Population and Food Problems Investigation Committee. The other one uh, is Jinkgo Mondai Kankukai, which is Population Problem Research Society. Um, As I mainly discussed in um, my chapter three, um, leading scholars who mediated uh, between population science and policy, such as uh, Nagai Toro, who is a social policy expert, and also well-known figure, Nitobe Inazo, who's a diplomat, Uh, and also agricultural economists, they show um, another layer of the population discourse, especially those who are involved in the population research group within the government. They highlighted the broader dimensions of the population problem that cannot be reduced into either a poverty issue, as many neo-baptists argue, or unemployment issues as many leftists birth control advocates uh, argued. Uh, instead, they argued, I mean, there's this uh, government research think tanker scholars uh, argued uh, that population issues are associated with multi-faceted historical, uh, social, economic, and even biological problems. So this problem requires extensive research and the state's leading role in governing a range of domains related to the population management. That was um, their more extensive definition of the population problem. And what should be noted here is that colonial expansion and um, extraction of resources were also considered by uh, this government research group. Um, Nitobe Inazo, for example, uh, is one of the leading advocates who was initially Negative about the mass migration of Japanese um, people in the colonies. So uh, it settled colonialism, but he was very negative about it. But instead he advocated for colonial expansion and development of colonial economy as a solution to the overpopulation issues in Japan proper. And this reveal was the indispensability of colonial expansion in the development of biopolitical population governance in the metropole, so in Japan proper. And such a vision was eventually incorporated into uh, agrarian colonization campaign with the creation of Lachukuo in 1932. And now you see that how militarism and this biopolitical vision was fused together uh, uh, after
0: 1930s, yeah, and that's um, again, you, you've done a great job of segueing here because I was just about to say that you know the, to, to get into part two, right? You start actually to do that in chapter three of of the book by doing this sort of bridging across, talking about how um, population science is operating uh, against the background of the Japanese foundation of this sort of puppet regime of Manchukuo in Manchuria. Um, and so your remaining your remaining chapters, chapters four through six, uh, look at wartime population policies, uh, not wartime proper in the sense of the Pacific War, World War II, but sort of this long 15-year war um, under increasing mobilization and eventually total mobilization. And I think more importantly for sort of our purposes, this kind of maturing and matured biopolitical state, um, so one characteristic of the new regime that you point out here is the sort of reduction of the population, you know, more thoroughly to just resources, to human resources, um, for the purposes of the state. But even within that, um, there's this sort of instrumentalized, massified population. But even within that, there is there are these remaining divisions, these differentiations along lines of gender, race, class. Uh, also, in the sense that um, we've you're talking about the different uh, spatialities of the empire. There's also these spatial differences. So how is this then, how are all these um, hierarchies actually enacted at the level of these sort of natalist policies uh, and the state control of the reproductive bodies of women? Mm -hmm.
1: Thanks for the question. Um, It is interesting to see how the population discourse with the outbreak of the Sino-Japanese War in 1937, and later it expanded into the Pacific War. Uh, but at the same time, you see that, as I argue in my book, how the total work of many fact materialized and even maximized various interwar visions for the population management. Uh, the selling difference uh, between these two years will be that the focus on population changes from finding solutions to overpopulation, to increasing the size of the human resources. Now the language changes also like from population to human resources and another dimension is improving their health which is quality issue. And despite this different foresight, you, you see some continuities, continuities as well between the two areas in terms of the maximization of modern systematic and scientific intervention in a, in a selected population. So, as I many discuss in uh, Chapter 4, the establishment of Kose Show the Ministry of Health and Welfare, as a primary body responsible for population governance, is integral to the emergence of the biopolitical state. And under the leadership of Show, um various pronatalist and eugenic policies, and campaigns were implemented to make, uh, what is called give birth and multiply and healthy soldiers and healthy people to materialize. And here you see two different, uh, vectors working simultaneously toward the making of the population. One is uh, incorporating different bodies under the category of the population and the other is differentiating bodies along gender, racial, and other lines. And I believe that you beautifully summarized that. Thanks for that. Um, The instrumentalization of motherhood uh, during wartime is in that sense uh, very essential to this bordering of the population. Uh, On the one hand, there was an increasing number of campaigns and welfare policies invested in maternal bodies uh, in chapter five by I uh, took the example of what is called national commendation for families with many healthy children in Japanese New York, those who had more than ten children they were awarded this commendation and they were called Fortal Wound Battalion. Very uh, um um how should I put it? It's a very um, um you know, very colonialism and a uh, very family uh oriented term but at the same time you can see the militaristic term from that or the other example that i gave in my chapter 5 is a handbook for the expectant mothers or means of potential in japanese this is another example of how the state invested in a maternal body um, during the wartime for the sake of the protection of the japanese mothers Uh, The wartime government's co-opting of existing feminist thoughts appears to be good for for women's empowerment, or at least uh, for their welfare. But if you delve deeper into the underlying logic of motherhood protection, it was uh, less concerned with the empowerment of women than with the reinforcement of gender roles uh, by glorifying women's reproductive roles as their quote-unquote natural vocation. And In other words, uh, their fertility was uh, the only ground for women to be recognized by the nation. If we pay attention to this historical construction of nationalist motherhood as a vital instrument for the state's population control during wartime, uh, we find gender politics situated at the heart of population discourse. Far from being peripheral. Here, we should not overlook that uh, there was more than the gender binary that enacted in- differentiation deployed by the wartime regime. What should be noted here is that the gendering of citizenship intersected with racial and class lines to differentiate women who were entitled to be mothers from those whose motherhood must be denied, and so those who were excluded from the state protection. Uh, The history of so-called comfort women or military sexual slaves, as I mentioned briefly earlier, uh, they were mobilized across the Japanese colonial empire and their experience exemplified how not only inclusion but also exclusion worked in the uh, reordering of life during wartime. Uh, Comfort women were deemed to be women unfit for procreation for or reproduction. Instead, they were forced to serve for quote-unquote comforting tasks, uh, namely sexual instruments for the purpose of satisfying uh, masculine-slash-imposed desires. Um, as I uh, briefly note uh, toward the end of my uh, chapter 5, um, it is not my intention to contrast these two bodies, mothers and comfort women as if uh, they represent a, in a hierarchical relationship. Um, although it is crucial to acknowledge the magnitude of violence suffered suffered by Japanese military uh, sex slaves during the wartime and of course afterwards, uh, I believe that it is also important to understand the different instrumentalities deployed by the wartime regime against women's bodies as a whole. In other words, the biopolitical rationality, remade Japanese mothers into a womb for the Japanese nation, while they also justified the exploitative violence against conflict women uh, in the name of the protection of male soldiers. So for both bodies, surveillance was put into practice in the form of medical intervention, uh, and that did not intend to protect the health of those women's, women's bodies, but only to secure the health of male human resources. And given this, uh, Japanese mothers and comfort women were not at opposite poles from each other, but uh, they were constructed differently, as, or, on, on the one hand, worms, on the other hand, as vaginas, by, by different modes of biopolitical intervention.
0: Yeah, and I think this is, um, it's a, one of the things that really uh, struck me about the book, is that, you know, while you are definitely writing um, a very specific historical text, It's depressingly relevant uh, to the ways that um, population questions and questions of national strength um, are still talked about today in Japan. I mean, if you. Listen to the way that politicians uh, and the business papers, for example, talk about the word "kokuryoku national power." It's basically the word is basically a synonym for for population, right? And this is the the freak out over the fact that Japan's population is decreasing. There's, I I think, it's more than a correlation; it's a causation in the minds of these the the sort of moral panic anxiety folks between the sense that 128 million versus 125. Well, we've lost. 3 million units of kokuryoku, right, of, of national power. And it it really made me think a great deal about, you know, the, the very infamous uh, 2007 incident in which Japan's health minister referred to uh, women age 15 to 50 as umu as birthing machines, right? And all these sort of ways in which so much of what you've been exploring in the book is, as I said, sort of depressingly relevant. Um, and so is this idea that, you know, um, in a sense, the other half of the Malthusian problem, right, is not just overpopulation or underpopulation, but also under-resourcedness, right, and this idea that Japan is resource poor, and so then the only resources you have are people, and then those people have to go out and get the other resources, whether that's land or other natural resources, and so again, I think this is one of those times when you know it's always dangerous to take a history book and say, and look at how, and look at today, um, and, and sort of line them up as as perfect parallels. Uh, but I was very much struck by the by, by those parallels and how useful they are um, in thinking about how these sort of tropes of population um, have, have become part of the discourse. Um, and that, it, I, please feel free to comment on that if you want to. But I had a question that follows from that, which is, given how sort of again, relevant, um, your your work is to uh, the world that we live in. Now, I'm wondering what it is that you're doing now that you have the book out um, and you're, after 10 years, able to focus on something else, a new project or maybe an extension, uh, offshoot of this project. What is it that you're up to these days?
1: Uh, I feel like that I will continue my earlier discussion, but in a different uh, way or from different angle. I I think as, as you just described that population issue, which uh, is more uh, critical now in Japan. I believe that many East Asian countries like South Korea and China also is suffering from the similar problem like uh, birth rate uh, has, has been dropping uh, in the past decade. And then you see that how the government is trying to uh, encourage women to uh, give birth more. It's basically, so I didn't expect that my book uh, would be read like this way in the current context uh but uh what happened is i believe that my book is just a preview of that what's unfolding now yeah it's it's interesting but um currently um i'm working on a new project on the politics of abortion in 20th century um this project extends my other discussion in my book on the biopartics of reproduction but i will attempt to reorient the question of reproduction to examine what i call non-reproductive experiences of women such as abortion sterilization birth control or family planning especially in the context of quarter period right so the reason for focusing on women's reproductive experiences other than childbirth uh is that i would like to unsettle uh so-called the liberalist feminist binary of pro-choice and pro-life as we often seen in American context. Not that I do not support of women's bodily autonomy, but I think this binary and especially this convenient association between uh, women's reproductive freedom with only abortion rights uh, seems to be inadequate uh, uh, to fully grasp the complex situation that has happened in Japan uh, throughout the 20th century and even today. Um for example in Japan in the postwar period you see the enforcement of the uh, eugenic protection law uh, which lasted about 5 decades surprisingly uh and under this law you see that how the government um legalized certain group of people with certain types of hereditary disease uh to go through abortion legally and in fact, it had less to do with the protection of bodily autonomy and reproductive rights, but more to do with, again, curbing the population size. Now that, that things have changed in the war-time period, uh, government decided that uh, we may have able to give birth to more babies in the poster period. Now we have to decrease the size of the population. It's a very interesting change. But again, the state control that, that what state desire and what medical intervention wants to achieve, you see some similar patterns. And the other thing is in the pusher period, as the name of the uh, law said, eugenic was another um, important principle that guided this kind of our prin- uh, policy and uh, the government wanting to improve the population quality as well in the pusher period under this law, and and given um, this structural condition that promoted non reproductive choices of certain bodies among the population. Uh, it is crucial to understand where the line is drawn between the body that is worthy of procreation and other bodies that had to stay infertile. And in in this project, uh, one thing that I would do differently from the first book, The Worms of Empire, uh, is sort of my uh, own experiment, uh, is that I want to focus on uh, women's own narratives that represent their experiences and their, their voice. About their about abortion, sterilization, and contraception, using various literature and also memoir or, or other type of uh, life writing, and I would like to uh, weave their stories with the bigger structural history of population control, such as eugenic laws that I just described, family planning campaigns, uh, some media landscape, and medical or genetic genetic technology. Uh, all of which were involved in what I call the biopolitics of non-reproductivity. And I hope that uh, my second book, uh, if, if ever made it to the finish line, uh, uh, can contribute to our understanding of the current issues that I, not only Japan, but many other societies is currently experiencing.
0: Well, we will definitely be looking forward to that second book, and hopefully we'll be able to to have you back for that uh sometime soon uh sometime within the next 10 years uh but i know it it does it does take some time uh but i'm very much looking forward to it and thank you so much for taking the time to talk through your book with us today
1: thank you so much